Amen. Now, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 23 as we continue working our way through the gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 23 tonight, we're verses 26 through 31. We hear this evening the last recorded words of Jesus before his crucifixion, his Words on the cross are famous uh, and very weighty. Perhaps you remember some of them. Luke will tell us uh, very shortly that he will pray, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He'll tell a repentant criminal on that cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. Very gracious words. But tonight we hear his last words before He's nailed to that cross. Only Luke records them for us. They are a short sermon, and I wonder if you know them. In the passage before us, Jesus shows himself to be a faithful pastor and a faithful preacher, faithful in his calling as Messiah, as prophet, priest, and king. Right to the very end. We've already seen him in his office as king just lately, just recently before Pilate. He confesses, I am the king. You have said so. Now, to be sure, he endures humiliation for the claim to be king. He allows himself to be mocked. But he is king. Very shortly, he will be upon that cross as our great high priest offering the one final sacrifice that takes away sin. He's our priest. But he's also a prophet. And he preaches a sermon, and in it he foretells danger to Israel. And he warns them of judgment, and he calls others to repentance. Let us hear him as he does so. Luke 23, beginning at verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves And for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, What will happen when it is dry? Amen. This is God's word. Let's look at him in prayer. And our Father in heaven, this is your word and the sermon of your great son. We pray he would be a prophet to us tonight, that he would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Grant that you would enlighten the eyes of our minds that we would behold Jesus and wonderful things in your word, and that you would do good to our souls through this and glorify him. In his name I pray. Amen. 
During the 1982 war between Britain and Argentina, the Falkland Islands, the British Navy guided missile destroyer HMS Sheffield was sunk by a single Exocet or Flying Fish missile, still in use today, fired, certainly updated, I, uh, I'm sure, <laughs> fired from an Argentine, Argentinian fighter jet. It was the first British Navy vessel sunk in 37 years since World War II. The missile hit about eight feet above the water line. It, it blasted through. It broke the fire water main, and so a fire was set that couldn't be put out. It caused the ship to have to be abandoned. Some 20 died, and dozens also were injured. The Sheffield had about one minute before the missile hit. They picked up on radar. It's incoming. The Argentinian fighter jet that hit it had flown so low in the ocean under the radar and only popped up briefly on a few occasions to get its bearing and the bearing of the British vessel that it was barely seen and not by the Sheffield. On the Sheffield, preparations to evade or disable the missile in flight would have taken four minutes Time which they did not have, but time they might have had, had they been properly warned. Now, 30 years later, there's still some controversy about exactly what happened and who should get the blame for it, if any, among the officers and crew of the Sheffield. But it is known that the British Navy was aware that two giant fighter jets had flown off land and come their way, and a British aircraft carrier, the Invincible, not far away, had picked up on its radar incoming planes from 180 miles away, 19 minutes away, planes which in their uh, procedure had simply popped up on very random occasions to take their bearings and then flown below radar level. Well, They had been spotted multiple times, but the series of spottings were dismissed by senior officers on the Invincible as, quote, spurious. And so they did not report them to the rest of the fleet, and so the Sheffield had no idea of the danger ahead. And therefore they were unready and unprotected when destruction was upon them. Why do I tell you that story? I think it's obvious. In this final sermon, Jesus does not leave the inhabitants of Israel ignorant or unwarned of coming destruction at the hand of the Roman army. He doesn't leave them unaware that they will face the judgment of God by means of the Roman Empire. But he tells them the truth in love. And I want to pause and say any time that we have an occasion to contemplate judgment, and it is not this pastor's favorite subject to preach, but any time we have an occasion from the Bible to consider it, we ought to receive the warning of judgment as a mercy from God. Because he doesn't want his people to be ignorant. He doesn't want the world to be unaware or unprepared from what is inescapable, except by his mercy in Jesus. And as later events prove, some in Jerusalem believed Jesus and were spared. 
And some, many, remained ignorant and unbelieving and suffered on account of it. So I want you to consider this sermon, its context, its content, and its closing parable. The context in or proverb, the context in verse 26 is given where it tells us about Jesus. And it, it points to the great pain that he was in as he preaches this sermon. Then at verse 27 to 30, you actually have the content of the preaching And then in verse 30, he closes with a proverb. So there's his pain, there's the preaching, and there's the proverb, those three things this evening. At verse 26, you get the details about what is going on in the context of which Jesus preaches. And we learn about his pain and his weakness and his suffering. Verse 26, as they led him away, it says, They seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now, why is he carrying the cross for Jesus? John tells us Jesus started out with the cross on his back. Usually a condemned man would have done so. Doing so down the busy paths and streets served as a warning to others. They paraded them in public. And it would have been a kind of mercy to the condemned criminal, at least to this end, that they would have had time to contemplate their end as they carried that cross. And they no doubt would have been more worn out that their suffering might end that much more quickly once nailed upon the cross. But Jesus, we find out, though he started with it, was too weak to continue with it. He simply could not. You remember that just the evening before he had sweat great uh, great drops of blood in anguish of soul. Perhaps he was a bit dehydrated. He'd been betrayed and arrested and tortured and beaten. He'd been dragged from from the, the Jewish chiefs to the Roman governors to Pilate, then back to Herod and then back to Pilate. He'd been lied about. He'd been interrogated. He'd been mocked. He'd been declared innocent, but then condemned to death. And the crowds had shouted, crucify him. Everybody, it seemed, was against him in his immediate circle. Before he was crucified, we know, as the other gospel writers point out, though Luke doesn't mention it, that he was flogged. This is where they took the whip. And on the strips of leather, they tied stones and bits of bone into the ends of them to tear the flesh much more severely. And we also know that though the Jews had a limit of 39 lashes to any man, the Romans did not have such restraint. And many who suffered a Roman flogging did not survive that flogging. It would have torn not just the flesh of his back, but it would have torn muscle away from bone. It would have perhaps exposed internal organs. This is a severely beaten tortured, crushed man falling to the ground here, too weak to carry the crossbeam that will be attached to the post and needing another to carry it for him. Now perhaps sometimes as you ponder the love of Christ for you, you imagine Jesus walking to the cross steadfastly with chin held high and full stride, powerfully doing what needs to be done for us. In the strength of his deity. Sort of untouched by it all. And that is not the case. He is 
fully human as well, a true body and a reasonable soul. And he was torn up physically, emotionally, and mentally crushed. And spiritually, he knows what's coming. He's not just bearing the cross beam. He's bearing on his shoulders the sins of his people. And he knows he's going to suffer the judgment of God against sinners upon that cross. He is worn out. And so the Romans constrict a passerby to carry the cross on his behalf. Luke tells you his, his name is Simon of Cyrene. Now, why does he tell you who he is? Where is he from? Who is this guy? Cyrene is North Africa. Uh, Tripoli uh, is its most famous city. It's now where Libya, or what we call Libya, is. Uh, he's likely, Simon of Cyrene, likely one of the Jews of that city who's come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. If that's the case, he's uh, perhaps more than 1,000 or even 1,500 miles from home, likely having saved his whole life to come celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. Now, we do know that in Jerusalem, there were synagogues of Cyrenians, if that's how you say it. There were many from Cyrene. In Jerusalem, perhaps he lived there, but he's coming out of the mountains and he's passing by, perhaps, and very ironically, thinking that he's coming to eat in Jerusalem the Passover meal. And by turn of event, he's actually carrying the instrument of death of the Passover lamb, the true lamb of God. Now, why does Luke say he's Simon of Cyrene? Because he isn't some man who's a nobody and remains a nobody. But this is a man who may have been a nobody. But, but they made somebody carry the cross, and Luke doesn't just say they made somebody else do it. Luke tells you his name. Why? Well, his name is known to this day, in part because Luke gave it to us, but, because, but also because of his boys, his children. We know, as Mark tells us, and Luke knew Mark, that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. <laughs> just one of those little facts thrown into the gospel story. Why would you put that in there except that Alexander and Rufus are known to the church? In that day, and if you wanted to know who carried that cross, and did Jesus really go from Pilate to the cross, or, or as our Muslim friends believe, was somebody substituted in? At least that's one of their theories, because they don't believe Christ Jesus was crucified upon the cross. If you wanted to know, did this really happen? Is this mythology, or is this history? They could have said, well, you asked Simon. He's the father of Rufus and Alexander. Paul will even mention Rufus in Romans 16, if it's the same Rufus, and it's not a very well-known name. Well, then Paul says, not only greet Rufus, who's chosen in the Lord, but in Romans 16, he says, and also his mother, who was also like a mother to me. Could it just be that Simon, perhaps a faithful Jew, met the Passover lamb, was brought to faith and brought not only his boys to faith in Jesus, but his own wife as well? It may just be that, but Luke wants you to know who did this. It's Simon and why he did it. And notice in the midst of all this, notice that Jesus, in the midst of tremendous weakness, tremendous physical agony, still has on his mind not just what he suffered or what he's about to suffer, but he has others and their well-being on his mind. He turns to these daughters of Jerusalem, these women who are mourning, behind him and he speaks to them he wants them to understand and he wants to warn them 
call them to repentance. He wants them to know how to escape because he loves them. No hardship in Jesus' experience could keep him from caring for others or speaking the truth in love to them. And in that, he is a faithful pastor. So that's the first thing you see. And then he preaches his sermon to them at verse 27 and 30 through 30. And it is, the content of it is a warning about coming judgment. Verse 27, there followed a great multitude of people and the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. This is who he preaches to. There were many women, daughters of Jerusalem, citizens of Israel, mourning and following. We know that culturally, this would have been very typical, as it is even today in Middle Eastern cultures in some places. There is such a thing as professional mourners. Uh, Part of what this would have been is a recognition that death is a reason for mourning. It ought to be mourned. And in some reasons, in some cultures, that is reason enough to guarantee that there will be mourning at a death. Even to pay people to mourn and to pay those people to help provoke in others the right response to death, which is to mourn. But so here they are, this crowd of mourners. Maybe some of them truly in their own heart are genuinely grieving for Jesus as well. And he preaches to them a sermon looking at them at verse 29 and saying, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Now what is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying, don't pity me. I don't need your tears. I have come to do just exactly what I came to do and I am doing it. And I know exactly what lies ahead and I will not be denied it. And I don't need your sympathy as I go through it. But weep for yourselves. I'm sympathetic for you. I pity you. Why? Verse 29. For the days are coming, he says, when they will say, blessed Are the barren in the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed? There's coming a day for Jerusalem, he says, a terrible time. So horrible people will wish they didn't have families. Mothers will wish they didn't have offspring only to see them suffer. People will even long for a quick death by natural disaster. Verse 30, calling on the mountains, perhaps a supernatural disaster, asking for the mountains to fall on them and the hills to cover them, longing to escape from this suffering. What suffering? Well, it's the judgment of God against Israel by and through the army of Rome. On many occasions, Jesus actually foretold this judgment about the Jewish nation. In Luke 21, if you just flip back, Luke 21, 20 to 24, he said very recently, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these days are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. And alas, he says, verse 23, 
for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And here Jesus is now at his end. And he warns them a vicious assault under the hands of the Roman army is coming against you. For you have rejected God and you have rejected God's Messiah. And you are going to taste sorrow. Weep for yourselves. And we know that this came true in the late 1960s, culminating in the Roman siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, when Titus destroyed the city and its temple. Josephus, who uh, was a personal witness to the events, he was a Jewish man serving the government of Titus, sent actually as an emissary of Titus to the Jews in the city. And he's not always... To, to be counted thoroughly reliable on everything he says. He was known to exaggerate, and others will disagree with the numbers here, but he says 1,100,000 people perished in the siege, and 100,000 were captured and enslaved. During the siege, the Roman governor let Jewish pilgrims outside the city come in to celebrate the Passover, but then to put pressure on the city against its water reserves and its food supply, he wouldn't let them back out. And so the city was inundated with Passover celebrants. And over the course of months, there was mass starvation. The people took to eating their belts and their shoes and leather stripped off their shields. And he says, and he says others can bear witness, that even cannibalism was practiced in Jerusalem and even by mothers against their own young. This is what Jesus, this event, is what Jesus is warning them of and this is why he tells them to weep for themselves. And you may say to yourself, where is the good gospel in a message about this? I mean, he's going to the cross to save people. Why this? You may ask, but isn't it part of the gospel that we are to repent? And isn't part of the good news of the gospel that there is the bad news of judgment against sin and sinners from which we are saved and we can rejoice in his salvation? Isn't this not the message that Jonah brought to Nineveh when he, when he said to them, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown? It was a message designed to bring repentance. That's gospel. And unless you flee, you will, you will endure this, he says. And so Jesus is calling this crowd and the women to believe him, uh, to repent of their sins, certainly, uh, that they might not endure the spiritual judgment of God for sin, but also that they would listen to him and not endure the Roman temporal judgments. And then he closes his sermon with a proverb at verse 31. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? 
Now, if you've been a Boy Scout or been camping this fall and built yourself a fire to cook your s'mores or hot dogs, you know exactly what Jesus is saying. Dry old sticks burn faster than new, fresh, wet, green sticks. When you want to have a good fire, you pick up the old, dried out wood and you burn that first. And you can throw some green wood on top, but you don't start the other way. And Jesus is comparing himself to the green branch and the people of Israel or Jerusalem to the old dry wood. He is innocent, but he's going to the cross, about to be thrown in the fire. And, and, and he's saying to them, if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? In other words, he's reminding them of the reality of their deserved judgment If the Romans treated, he's saying, the holy and innocent one, which is what I am, like this, having already declared me innocent, and they're going to do this to me, what exactly do you think they're going to do to you? You who are spiritually dead and rebellious against Rome, which is what they became. We could end the sermon there. (laughs) Sobered, perhaps, thinking of that judgment which came about in the year A.D. 70, just as Jesus said it would, which for 2,000 years has left the Jewish nation without a temple, without a line of kings, without a line of priests, without a place of sacrifice, even to this day. And we could also pause and reflect and not only be sobered by this event, but rejoice with our fellow believers and others who escaped Jerusalem, having believed Jesus' words, and in A.D. 66, four years before its final destruction, when the armies of Rome were advancing under another leader and had surrounded the city, they escaped to Pella. There was a mass of people who left the advancing Roman army, believing the Savior's warning. And we could rejoice with them. And we could say, you can trust Jesus and you can trust the Bible because the things that he says are going to happen, happen. But I don't believe that we should end just there. We should think about ourselves for a moment. And we should remember that the judgment on Israel by Rome is but a foretaste of another and greater final judgment the Bible makes clear will come. And our radar antenna should go up when we hear of judgments throughout the Bible, whether it's in the days of Noah or in the days of of Israel as they cross over the Jordan and God uses them as an instrument against the other nations or whether it's the Gentile nations God uses as, as an instrument against the Jews. Whenever we hear of these things, we should see them like little fighter jets popping up, captured on radar for a moment, warning us of yet more danger to come. One that will come upon, the Bible says, all mankind. And like the daughters of Jerusalem, when that judgment comes, people will wish for safety when it is too late. You can read about this in many places in the book of Revelation. If you want to turn to Revelation chapter 6, let me point in uh, just one passage to you. When Jesus opens the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6, beginning at verse 12, it's the scroll of the seals that are unfolded, the four four horsemen and uh, other uh, seals. 
It is the unfolding of history. Jesus is worthy to take the seal of the scroll and, un- and break its seal and unroll because he's the Lord of history. It says in verse 12, chapter 6, Behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. And at verse 14, the sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is a vision of Physical elements disintegrating, turning again to chaos, a picture of what happens in final judgment. Notice at verse 15 how the people react. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. That is just what the daughters of Israel are warned that they will wish for. But notice that the people in John's vision are not afraid of a Roman general and his wrath. But they are afraid of a much more terrifying figure. As the revelation continues, verse 16, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? One day the whole world will face the wrath of the Lamb of God and be held accountable for sins, their sins. But today is not the day of that wrath at this very moment as I say these words today is the day of salvation the Bible says for God did not send his son into the world that the world might be condemned by him but that the world might be saved through him and Jesus says I am your way of escape I am going to the cross to be destroyed by judgment on your behalf And you will be spared that destruction if you are in me. Just trust in me and be sheltered. Dear friends, there is no safety in running away from Jesus, but running into Jesus and being found in him, covered and clothed and safe in him. And when you are sheltered in him, you have nothing else to fear. And that is good news. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, have mercy upon us all. Grant that we would believe and trust in Jesus, the Savior of all who look to him. Save us, Lord Jesus, and grant us the joy of your salvation. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing and prepare ourselves to come to the table of the Lord.